imagine the day when I become a leader of one of the biggest recruitment teams in the region, in Europe, Middle East and Africa. And that's really what I was aiming towards. So once I'd done that position for a few years, I just started to question, why was I so driven to get to this position in my life? What does this say about me? What does this mean? Welcome to Beeline, a podcast brought to you by the Hive Change Consultancy and hosted by its CEO, Andrew Tilling. My name's Gemma Aston, and I'm part of the leadership team at the Hive. Our job is to serve leaders like you who are committed to making a positive impact. I've put together this podcast series and invited some passionate and knowledgeable changemakers to help us find the Beeline the simplest way to bridge the gap between pain points and solutions, and to give you the resources to support your leadership journey. Beeline, lead the way. When I speak to leaders who are involved in leading change, something that seems to come up more and more is about looking at things from a new perspective. And for me, trying to generate those new perspectives has been something which has driven a lot of my career, trying to take some of that creativity that sparks new insight that we can use to create change. So leading change and having a new way of looking at things, reframing our perspectives, uh, is a theme that we're exploring on Beeline at the moment. And speaking to somebody who has actually had the experience of not only having a change in career which you know i think many of us can relate to you know changing jobs certainly all of us can relate to but to actually have somebody who's worked in an environment gone away had a shift in perspective and then come back into that environment again with that new perspective in order to lead change i feel that those people are rarer so to come across katie mantua george our guest for today um, was a real find. Katie leads organizations to help them build a more empathetic and compassionate mindset. Um, she leads workshops and talks around um, inclusion and self-inclusion particularly, and the power of using meditation to cultivate that empathetic and, and compassionate mindset that can create that working environment where we can all contribute and also shape each other's perspectives in a really effective way. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Katie onto Beeline today. Welcome, Katie. Thank you, Andrew. What an amazing introduction. (laughs) I already feel super positive about the conversation, but it's so great to be here. I've got to ask, just to start off, what is self-inclusion? Yeah, so... Good question, Andrew. It can mean a lot of different things for different people, but essentially what it means for me is the ability to um, have a really good understanding of yourself to be able to um, be comfortable in all spaces that you're in. So you want to ensure that you feel comfortable within your work environment, within your friendship group, within your relationships, and you need to take responsibility for that. So we often talk about inclusion, which is a very important topic, obviously, but that is very much um, hoping and wishing for external circumstances to include you, which is wonderful, and we should all be trying to include others. But essentially, we need to take some control over that to see what is it that I can do to ensure that I am included in all environments and all spaces. And that really comes down to you doing some work on yourself and you have control of that. So it's a very powerful way of 
um, I suppose, reframing your life and your purpose and your desire by saying, I have control of this and I will choose to be in this space, in this room, in this relationship or whatever it is. So that would be my vision or understanding of what self-inclusion is. You've worked a lot in talent recruitment and I imagine a lot of that is about kind of creating space, laying down career parts of people coming into an organization and making an impact. Can you tell us a little bit about that early career of where you started off? Because, you know, you've had some pretty strong corporate experience in that regard. Yeah. I mean, you know what, for me, it just comes from a passion um, of people. I love to see people succeed in the early career space. I really enjoyed helping, you know, young people to navigate and to figure out where they should be. Those first years of your work experience are critical, right? They're crucial in terms of forming your identity. And even though we don't want our jobs to really be part of our identities as a human being, um, society still operates in a way that um, will label you and your job and the company you work for is a very big part of who you are as a person. So for me, it felt um, critical to help young people navigate, find the right industry, find the right job, and really essentially find um, somewhere they're comfortable to work in and where they're going to excel and exceed and expand and grow. So that's really where it comes from, from my perspective. And actually, interestingly, when you think about the topic of self-inclusion, you think about talent acquisition and who does particularly well within recruitment processes, it tends to be candidates and individuals who are quite sure of what they want out of life and what their purpose is. They tend to be the people who get through the interview process successfully, not necessarily the people who have um, the highest credentials or the, you know, um, the best degree or the best university. I mean, those are certainly factors, but really what comes to play once you're actually talking to somebody in an interview format is, wow, this person really knows they want to be here. This person's very sure of themselves and they have the motivation and drive to push themselves, to expand themselves in this role. And those are the people you're really looking for, right? You're not looking for the people who have the credentials, but don't have the motivation to um, succeed or don't have the confidence to believe they can do the job, even if they don't have the skills just yet. Um, For sure. I mean, there's three Mm. questions that really stand out for me in recruitment Mm. that that I heard some while ago and just went, wow, that's it. It's it's, can you do the job? Will you love the job? And can I tolerate working with you? I mean, apart from that, you know, (laughs) what else are we looking for? But that loving the job and, and getting a sense of what you're coming into even if there's you know and particularly if there's room to grow you know knowing that you're, you're going to commit to it long enough to see that growth and change I think is a, is a real big flag that says hey this person is somebody that I want to trust and want to invest yeah, in absolutely and like you said you know you also think about who you can tolerate <laughs> so when you're interviewing somebody you're thinking can I spend the majority of my days my hours in my day with this individual are we going to be able to collaborate are we going to be creative and innovative is this person going to bring new ideas to the table essentially you spend more time with your colleagues than you do with your family and friends when you probably Mm. add up the hours of your life so it's it's quite a, a big decision to make it's a very human decision to make and I think people don't realize that in in terms of um how you believe you can relate to somebody through an interview process is a big reflection of um, what they'll be like in the job and obviously their authenticity as well so is the person you're interviewing now going to be the person who shows up on the day on the first day of work do you believe you have got to know that person well enough that that individual will show up not a, a version of that person who is in the interview so that's also a big part of the interview process can you tell us a little bit about that early career and just tell us a little bit about this story because for me 
the shift in perspective that you were able to generate um, seems to have had profound uh, repercussions and that you've it's gone on to really shape a lot of the work that you do now so could you tell us a little bit about that story and how you got to where you are yeah absolutely so as you know I did 15 years um, in the corporate space and really the last role I had at Amazon was the well the biggest role I'd had in terms of a leadership position um, managed a team of nearly 40 individuals across about 12 different countries and we were hiring you know, a couple of thousand interns and grads per year. So it was critical that we functioned as an effective team and that we were productive as well as all of us wanting to be there and, you know, wanting to kind of go on this mission together to to do something that is pretty profound in the recruitment industry to be hiring that number of people across such a large area. So, um, so all of my experience was building up towards that role. And so throughout my career, I always thought, Oh, imagine the day when I become a leader of one of the biggest recruitment teams in the region, in Europe, Middle East and Africa. And that's really what I was aiming towards. So I was always very driven. I always knew where I was going. I wanted a bigger brand name on my CV. I wanted a bigger team. I wanted, to be honest, more recognition. All of this was kind of building towards almost a creation of this version of Katie that was this corporate leader who was going out and doing panels and presentations and representing my company in you know magazine articles and all of these kind of things you know I, I felt very very proud of that interestingly <laughs> once I'd got to that position and once I'd done that position for a few years I just started to question why was I so driven to get to this position in my life what does this say about me what does this mean and throughout that process have I maybe forgotten a little bit about the core of who I am as a person versus this kind of grandiose corporate label that I was covering myself in. Um, and I remember people saying to me, some of my closest friends and family, in particular, maybe my parents as well, who are very creative souls who really didn't go down any corporate route, you know, is this is this really what you want to do? And, and have you forgotten the core of who you are and, and why you study psychology and, you know, all this ideology around wanting to help others and wanting to guide others started really well. But are you still doing that now? And also when you get into leadership positions as well, you actually get detached from the real people you're supporting and serving. So I was never really meeting the graduates anymore. I wasn't going on campus to see the students. I, I wasn't actually doing the very thing that I thought I wanted to do. I was really being strategic, which is great. Um, I was making decisions around, you know, which country we'd move into or the shape of the team and, you know, how we should expand and, you know, the costs and all of these things that are fascinating and good for my development and growth, but actually not at the core of what I wanted to do, which was to better serve others and to support others. So like many people during lockdown was when, you know, I was trapped in beautiful Cape Town <laughs> and sort of thinking about what should I do with my life? And it's a much more of a creative environment in, in South Africa, well, in Cape Town in particular. Um, so it's not unusual for people to, you know, talk very openly about, you know, stripping away labels, corporate labels. People are just not very corporate in that city. So it was a great chance for me to, to really get to the core of who I was. And uh, that's when I started, when I asked for a sabbatical. <laughs> Bold move right yes. there. Yeah, I mean, I can go on, I can go on from this. So I asked for a sabbatical and I thought, you know what, maybe I just need three months off. There were, to be honest, some challenges in the team before that, um, some different dynamics brewing and lots of change happening in the organization. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to be part of it, but I, I wasn't really aware 
that I wanted a bigger change than I was expecting. I was thinking I wanted to go back into the organization and maybe shift roles and do something a little bit different. But when I took my sabbatical, I got some coaching from an amazing lady who really kind of probed me and pushed me to um, not think about the job title, not think about the, the brand, and not think about whether I could become a global lead. Let me move from regional to global. She tried to get me to understand the core of what I liked. So the silliest questions like, you know, what's your favorite food? I know it sounds ridiculous, but you know, I was like, gosh, mangoes, mangoes. I love mangoes. And, you know, that's when I would light up and get excited, helping people, guiding people, serving others. That's when I would light up. Um, so we just pinpointed all these different stages in terms of when I actually showed physical or emotional joy for something. And it really wasn't actually anything to do with the job title, the money, the brand name. All of those things were just status items, probably is a good way of describing it. They gave me status in society. They were the kinds of things that people would respect, you know, and also in some ways for for a woman of color and somebody who looks like me, it was not what people expected of me. So it was quite cool that I was a leader of such a big team in a big company, because when people looked at me, they would always say, oh, are you a singer? Or do you do sports? Or, you know, so I could say, well, actually, no, I'm the leader of this huge team at Amazon. And you, what does that really mean? What is it, you know, why am I covering up um, my identity with these labels? So, yeah, so then I uh, plan to go back into Amazon and I was feeling quite apprehensive about it. And then, Oh, I mean, I would say the universe took control after that, Andrew. I cannot honestly give you all the details of what happened, but somehow everything unraveled and I ended up leaving Amazon and it was a very difficult, very stressful time. It was six months of back and forth, long conversations, trying to figure out where I'd fit within the company, but me knowing that I didn't want to be there, but not really understanding why I didn't want mm -hmm. to be there. And when it eventually unraveled, having that time to stop and reflect and to find tools that would help me to rediscover who I actually was became my key focus. Um, so I would say that the six months after I left Amazon was really just about me unearthing who Katie actually was. Um, and that was that's the journey that I've been on. Mm. I think that's such a profound moment just to sit in for a moment because there's so much there that I think is important to recognize when you're trying to lead change and you're trying to lead other people through transformation and what you're asking them to do and how they see themselves and, and the labels we wear and all that sense of identity. It sounds to me like the old goal that you had still had a profound amount of power over your psyche, your sense of story. Mm-hmm. In untangling that, did you find that that influence was affecting other aspects of your life or was it just about the career? Mm. And, and, and was that was that the bit that needed the most entanglement or disentanglement or was there something else around that? Mm, gosh, I mean, that's a really deep question. You know, I think that I've never really thought about this, Andrew, but you're absolutely right. When that disentanglement happened with this corporate label, this version of Katie, I definitely feel that the relationships around me changed a lot. So my personal relationships in terms of my relationship with my husband, for example, was very different. The people I was attracting into my life were very different. So even now it's interesting having 
gone through that shift in a different country as well. So going through that shift in South Africa, the friends I made in South Africa after I made that shift are very different. They come from a broad array of different industries, you know, actually primarily in the well-being industry. So I started actually attracting friends who were not corporate, (laughs) didn't work in the finance industry or the tech industry or the insurance industry. And I hadn't really interacted with those individuals before. You know, I was interacting with healers and yoga teachers and marketing professionals and people who worked for amazing charities, you know, and I was like, why are these people coming to me now I'm not in that circle that's not my environment how do they find me and I mean I was finding people in cafes and chatting to them and becoming friends or going to a yoga class or going to a retreat and connecting with individuals who were psychologists and authors and you know really creative souls creative in the the true sense of creativity I know you can be creative in the corporate space but Mm. um, and then coming back to London actually and kind of dropping back into my old environment where a lot of my friends are from corporate industries not all of them but a good percentage of them and actually just um, recognizing how I feel and actually I feel quite uncomfortable in some situations now when, <laughs> because I've changed so much in myself and what my identity means and the removal of that also that materialistic element when you're often in the corporate space in terms of mm. what you wear and how expensive your jewelry is or you know where you go out for dinner and all of that has really changed inside of me and, and what what actually makes me happy and comfortable and showing up for events and dinners with friends as me as Katie and not putting on certain outfits or you know all of that has actually changed I didn't really think about it so much but now that you kind of asked me that question I think why was it so emotionally difficult to come back to London I think inside of me somewhere I had a recognition that nothing had changed here but I had changed a lot and how Ah. was I going to fit in again do I need to fit in again so it's quite a profound question and it's a deeply emotional one I cried a lot when we came back to London I remember the first day I landed I cried a lot for the first week or two I cried almost every single day everybody every time somebody asked me a question and I obviously left some very close family behind in South Africa which is a big part of it but there was also this um, idea of who am I in London I didn't see any friends for at least two to three weeks Mm. I was trying to create this kind of bubble of safety around me because I didn't really know how to reintegrate and I have now and it's great and everything's fine, but I had to kind of do some self-inquiry to make sure that I showed up to those situations as the version of who I am now, which is a much truer version, I think. As a leader, having that space, I think there's there's enough written and spoken about being authentic as a leader and the value that that brings, particularly to a generation who wants to trust in people and are sometimes looking for reasons to not trust as well mm. because that wariness is is high we, you know, we know that authenticity is important but being authentic is a huge challenge and I, I I remember kind of finding my voice that had been quiet for well as long as I could remember and I was all you know, all these roles that I was representing to the world really representing other people's expectations of me or mm what they're they're looking for me to deliver and me kind of adopting that role but when you step into leadership and you're saying well actually this is the way that I want to lead things for these reasons and I can see benefit to be had here be that for the organization be that for the wider world at large and so I want to I want to deliver this just sitting in that space and finding that voice 
I mean, for me, was extraordinarily challenging. I imagine a lot of people can really relate to what it is that you're saying, because how do you build those barriers against that constant pressure to conform to other people's view of who you were, how they see you as being, mm. um, when you're also trying to build a strength and resilience to keep driving forward with the change that you want to lead. Mm. That's what yeah. comes up for me when you tell me your story. Mm, absolutely. It's actually interesting you say that. I really, oh, you know, it's only when you really step out of a situation that you can see the bigger picture or you can see the bird's eye view of what was actually happening at the time. And I remember people certainly recognized that I was a more authentic leader than maybe others in terms of being myself in the workplace. But I think what I didn't really realize was how much energy it took for me to actually be authentic, <laughs> which is crazy, right? Because everybody says, oh, just relax and be authentic and just be yourself, just bring your true self to work. But actually it took effort. Nobody said it that. was easy, but nobody said it would be this hard, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and I just think now I think, wow, gosh, I spent so much time and energy headspace you know trying to make sure that I didn't become like the leaders around me that I didn't completely forget who I was that I didn't go into meetings and mimic what people were saying or follow the strategy that people wanted us to follow or not be brave enough to ask the questions about why we're actually doing something you know it takes so much more energy to say maybe there's another way that we can do this bringing your true thoughts and opinions to the table. I think it's very easy to completely forget your innovative ideas or your um, sense of creativity. So, I mean, maybe an example would be that I would, people would sometimes say that I would ask quite stupid questions <laughs> in meetings. And that is what stops people from being innovative and creative because they're so worried that if they ask something that appears to be ridiculous, that they're going to get shut down and you do get shut down. So you have to really proactively say, well, you know what? I don't care if I ask the question, it may sound stupid, but I'm getting to something that you haven't thought about yet. So I'm happy to be the ridiculous one for the next five minutes in order for us to open up the conversation about something that we should probably be talking about. You know, I remember a scenario when we were doing a huge reorg and um, the idea was that we would just move people into new positions because we believed that we understood where people should be and that we would look at their strengths and their abilities and we would say, this person should be in this role with this manager in this country, whatever. And I was thinking, what makes us think that we know what that person wants to do? What makes us think that we're so special and powerful as leaders that we can read people's minds and make an accurate prediction on someone's desires and purpose and dreams and just move them somewhere because of our own beliefs and expect them to be happy. So why not have a conversation with those individuals and say, this is what we're trying to do. And this is why I think you might fit in this position. Do you agree? <laughs> do you think we're right? And whether they end up in that position or not, sometimes you have to make difficult decisions, but they, they feel part of the process. They feel part of the journey, right? And if they don't like it, you can support them to be elsewhere. Or you can support them to have, you know, to upskill to be in that position. But Things like that, that, you know, people will say, oh, that's so much more lengthy or, um, you know, sometimes people don't really know what they want to do. Really? Well, it's like re-recruiting half our management team because <laughs> they've all walked away because we've yeah. forced change on them and not invited yeah. them to be part of creating that change. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I've had managers tell me I'm too nice. 
you're too kind to your team, all these things. And, and then I hear my team saying, wow, you know, it's really great to have an empathetic leader, you know, and that's why I stay. And that's why I put more effort in. That's why I'm motivated. That's why I'm engaged. I think that it is, it is absolutely possible to be an empathetic leader and deliver results. And I think that combination is often seen as separate. I haven't got time to force people to do stuff all the time. That's just extraordinary effort and so time-consuming, inefficient, ineffective. You went back into Amazon, didn't you? Yeah. Having been through this space, what was what was that like? And and what what was the message that you were trying to create there? Yeah, it was super interesting, actually. I, yeah, after leaving Amazon, I have to be honest, I felt that that was it. I was done. <laughs> you know I'd had a very difficult breakup with the organization and and I thought you know what I don't want to have anything to do with the organization but over time as I thought about it I realized that it's not actually this beast that is the issue right it's not this whole brand that is the issue um the issue is people individual people within organizations who are most of the time I believe actually suffering themselves because they haven't done the work to to make themselves feel included, they haven't done the work to step out of the constructs of the organization to actually show who they truly are. And then they end up living in this kind of crisis mode, which maybe we will talk about a bit later. But when you leave and you look inwards, you see things more clearly, like I mentioned earlier. And interestingly, a team within Amazon approached me um, and asked me to come back in and run a workshop on empathy which really surprised me because I feel that most organizations, especially in the tech and finance industries, could do with a little bit more empathy. But I didn't really understand that um, leaders recognize that because whenever I spoke about it internally, it was shut down quite a lot in in any company I've worked in. It was a soft skill that wasn't to be focused on, invested in, um, for people to kind of waste their time on. So it was very surprising to me that my empathetic leadership had been recognized when I was there and that I was then approached by one of the business teams to come in and talk about empathy, a very male-dominated team, which a lot of tech teams are in in the tech industry, right? And they didn't have a particular angle they were trying to take, so I took the angle of being more empathetic to other teams within the organization, empathy towards your clients as well. So are you truly asking your clients the right questions to understand what their needs are? And Mm. are you actually listening to them effectively to hear what they're saying versus hear what you want to hear, which is a big part of practicing empathy, right, is being curious, but also listening radically, which is what I call kind of radical listening, where it's, you know, hearing what they've said not hearing all of the responses that are based on your conditioning and your expectations and your judgments. So we did a session on that. It actually went completely off piste because um, did about the first two slides and everybody had so much to say about how empathetic they thought they were, or they were too empathetic, not empathetic enough, really opening up personally in front of all of their colleagues about how empathy impacted their lives in their relationships at home, in their, um, how they navigate the world in restaurants and shops. I mean, it was absolutely fascinating. Um, And one of the biggest things that came out of it was actually that there is this need for internal teams and organizations to have empathy for each other, which is something that I really truly felt when I was in the talent space, because when you are in teams like people, human resources teams or talent teams, there is a bit of an expectation that you are somewhere at the lower end of the hierarchy in any company that you work in. 
and that, you know, the front facing business areas are the ones who are generating the income and therefore they have more say or that we should have more empathy for them versus the other way around. And there's sometimes a bit of friction and conflict between those internal teams. And I didn't even have to mention that. They mentioned that themselves and said, actually, do you know what? We would love to be able to work more effectively and productively within organization, within the organization to, to deliver better results and much more quickly. And empathy could be the key to doing that, really just understanding each other, asking the right questions and listening to each other. As simple as that. Yeah, it was very interesting for me to go back in. I absolutely loved it. Um, I felt that I could try and fix some of the things that um, were a bit broken internally, but also felt very, very good about myself to be able to be present in that environment that had been um, the people who had seen me in that environment had seen me as this leader with all these labels we've spoken about before. And then they could see me again as Katie, who was a truer form of myself and a lot more comfortable in myself. And they got to see that version of me, which uh, made me very happy, to be honest. <laughs> Did it change the way they related to you? I mean, I think they, I think I was a more inspiring human being. I think that they saw me as an inspiration and somebody who could guide them towards finding their true authentic selves as well. And that's why I'm absolutely enjoying going back into a multitude of different types of organizations now and um, people who have seen me before and people who haven't get to meet me as I am now um, versus this kind of corporate semi-robot I was before. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying all my favorite words. I mean, empathy and inspiration are, are, are kind of right up there. Right? Empathy builds rapport and rapport allows you to influence people's state. And unless you've got that rapport with people, you know, it doesn't matter how inspired you are or how mm. determined you are, you're not going to bring people with you. But if you can take the time to connect with somebody's world and have that rapport in place, then when you share your inspiration, mm. you light people up like Christmas trees. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful thing. It is. It is. And I think it's, you know, it's important that you mention what, what the true meaning of empathy actually is, which is understanding someone else's reality. It's not imposing your reality on on them or imposing your what inspires you on them is understanding them and also understanding that difference doesn't make you enemies so right. there's often that feeling of if you don't agree with me then we are kind of enemies <laughs> and that the whole point in life is to to all believe in the same thing or agree on the same thing but that's absolutely not what we're trying to do here and it's not effective and it's, it's just never going to work and what you're trying to do is understand other people's opinions respect those opinions and use that incredible diversity of thought to be able to create incredible things and to be able to inspire in different ways. So I think that's pretty important. I talk about that a bit in my presentations and my talks that people should have different opinions, right? Doesn't make them your enemies. <laughs> no, it helps us to learn and to grow, which I think leads us really nicely into this sense of, okay, then let's kind of getting down to business a little bit when we talk about inclusion and self-inclusion and creating that space where we have that authenticity and that voice and that is present in the conversations that we're having professionally in that environment what does bad look like what does it look like when it's not there mm. you know I would say that bad looks like waiting for the people around you to deliver to you your purpose your desire you know what you want to do in life so I think we often in the workplace expect our managers or our leaders to tell us what we're supposed to do 
But actually what a manager and leader should be doing is guiding you towards your true purpose and your core of, of what is going to um, help you to expand and grow and, and to be joyful in life, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that bad looks like waiting for others to direct you. <laughs> it's just not going to work. Yeah. I guess then if I'm a leader and I'm cultivating an environment where I am constantly banging my drum and I'm not hearing anything coming back, I guess that's a really strong indicator then that something's something's amiss right <laughs> absolutely the very strong indicator i think that you you want to be in a position where you're you know managing a team or leading a team where they feel open enough to have conversations with you about what they like and what they don't like and for you to give them the tools to be able to guide themselves and navigate themselves it's not for you to dictate to them where they should be and where they should be going it's for you to actually, you know, to lead in a coaching style, right? Mm. Um, that's really where we should be going forwards now, um, you know, to actually become almost part of the team. We almost want to get to the point where teams don't really need leaders or managers, where everybody becomes capable enough to be able to manage themselves and, and run themselves. And, and quite often when you're a manager and a leader, you need to understand that there are people in your team who are actually far more capable than you in terms of doing the core work. And you need to be comfortable with that and you need to be able to accept that and um, nurture that to ensure that those individuals get to where they need to be and that they're not forgotten or not recognised. Or indeed they can be even better than you if given yes. the chance to get over the first couple of hurdles to learn what's necessary in order to excel. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what you really want to see. You don't want to see your team feeling um suffocated by you or that you are the blocker between them and the next promotion or the next internal move opportunity or maybe even external move from from the organization so i think that is a important thing for leaders to remember do you know what's scaring me most about this conversation is that you're kind of describing functional environments mm. not not excelling environments mm -hmm. but functional mm -hmm. like we're getting on and doing things I'm doing some stuff. I may be stifling the environment. It's quite quiet. I don't get that much feedback, but we're getting on and we're doing the job and we're turning up and we're grinding. Yes, exactly. And that's the last place you want to be. And I think that gets the job done. And I think there are lots of organizations that will be happy to sit in that zone because essentially what they all want to just be able to do is kind of tick the boxes safely and produce something you know, maybe they've been doing for 10, 20 years and, you know, why, what, what is the saying? Why change something if it isn't broken? Yeah. Personally, I think, wow, imagine what you could do if you did break it a little bit. <laughs> I think some are actually scared of actually getting to the point or rather they're striving for that point. Yeah. If we can get, just get to the point where there's no drama and everyone's just quietly putting up, shutting up and getting on, then that'll yeah. be a win, right? Because yes. of that, that fear of, of getting into the conflict conversation. I think what we're maybe skirting around the edge of is that this being scared to have conflict, which kind of yes. taps into Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team, you know, unless we're, we've got the confidence, we've got the trust in place to actually have the difficult conversation, yes. then we, we are setting ourselves up for constant and consistent failure. So much of the anxiety in the workplace is actually that people are just incredibly scared. They're scared of getting things wrong. They're scared of the repercussions. They're scared of, you know, not being respected. They're scared of not being heard. They're actually just scared of a lot of different things. And your responsibility as a leader in an organization is actually to reduce that fear 
um, in order to allow people the space to ask the questions that may sound silly, to express the views that nobody else wants to say out loud, even though maybe the majority of the people in the room are actually thinking the same thing. You know, it's that reduction of fear that I think is a big part of having a productive, engaged, high producing team, actually. And I'm a true believer on shaking things up a bit empathetically, obviously, (laughs) Um, and with explanation on why you're shaking things up and why you're asking those questions and why you want to do things differently. Because after that, people will enjoy being there. People will feel part of the journey that you're on as well. And people will start to think bigger and expand the possibility of what they're even capable of doing. If you don't dangle some kind of new thinking or opportunity or innovation in front of people, then they will just keep ticking along and getting the job done and they'll get bored and, you know, they'll sit there for 10 years and then we'll all think, gosh, imagine what we could have done in the last 10 years if we had shaken things up a bit. Look at what our competitors are doing. Um, for example, where where were we in the last 10 years and why didn't that happen? So I think it's critical that we spend time talking about and thinking about fear in the sense of how can we reduce fear for others, but also how can we reduce fear for ourselves? You know, how can we recognize what we're worried about and try and overcome that to build the confidence to to be more present, to be more aware, to be more inquisitive in the workplace at the risk of being seen as a little bit crazy sometimes. But once people hear and understand, then they'll really appreciate that you've done that and that you've taken the hit for the team really to think differently as an organization. So yeah, it's not easy, but it's beneficial. So if I need to get from this place where I've got a shutdown environment, people are kind of getting on, conflicts are squashed. We just get on with a daily grind and get the job done. Maybe losing people, mm. high churn, maybe worse, the quit and stay environment where people are just kind of cracking on but aren't really engaged. If I want to get from there to this place where, um, as you're describing it, discussions are happening we're learning from each other, we're getting um, uh, challenged. Um, There's that kind of accountability, but also that that willingness to explore. There's an absence of the fear of failure, but more of a commitment to to learn and to to progress. Um, What else? Keep keep going, kind of describe this, what good looks like with me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I think purpose is a big one that, you know, Mm. the team have a purpose understand what the purpose is and feel part of the purpose of that team um so that you're in this that kind of camaraderie we're in this together and we're you know we're going to get there somehow we're all going to do it a bit differently but we're all aiming for this in the same direction we've all got the same long-term goal you know let's stop thinking short-term let's think about what we're trying to get to in you know two years three years five years I mean I remember making goals that were 10 years long gives people some direction to go in and I think that If you, as a leader, know why you're there and what your purpose is, why you have chosen to be in that role and in that organization, then people start to follow you and they join you on that journey, if it's part of their desire as well. And and, and if you're very clear about what your purpose is and they don't want to be part of it, then they will leave more quickly, which is actually a good place to be. Because if the team members are unclear on what you're driven by, and where you're trying to go, um, then they just feel lost and they'll just tick the boxes every day. But if they have a vision of what you're, they share your vision or they understand your vision at least, 
then their motivation will will really increase and the people who want to be part of that vision will stick around and, and really support you in it. And in fact, they will carry the vision for you almost. Uh, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary pleasure to be around. I have a, um, a team that I, I deeply admire and respect and um, the, the doors and the opportunities that are being opened by them are things that honestly I, I dreamt about years ago and but couldn't see the connection. Um, so to see that happening is incredibly inspiring. But um, all right, so what's the beeline then? We're talking about being clear about your vision and your purpose, representing that authentically. What else can we do to close that gap? Mm. I think you need to study yourself. I think you need to come to a place within your own being, within your own understanding of who you are that you need to be um, able to decide on what your label is in the world and in society and navigate every space and every conversation with those core values at the heart of everything that you respond to so I think that once you know what your vision is what your values are then everything starts to flow after that so that little bit of self-inquiry is going to serve you for the rest of your life. And people see that, they feel it, they're attracted to it. So I would say that would be the, the beeline. Understand yourself, understand what you truly want, and the rest will follow. You're inspiring a lot of people with your work. You're opening people up. You're creating that safe space for them to be empathetic. That's clearly having an impact. What would you say was the biggest obstacle that you've had to overcome to be able to make that impact? I, mean, I think the biggest obstacle was leaving the corporate world. It was a huge decision. I had a lot of people who said that I was crazy. And I really had to do a lot of work to say to myself, I am going to let go of that. I'm going to allow myself to kind of free fall <laughs> into the unknown, to truly let go of everything I thought I was. And even if it meant I would come out the other end and realize that that was where I was supposed to be, and that I would go back into that, that would have been fine as well. It was really, really hard. Before it got good, it, was, it got really bad. And I had to change my perspective in terms of what success actually meant, what it meant to grow and expand and innovate in a, in a different kind of way. Um, and that's where meditation really came into play for me in, in, in a very big way, because meditation is a fantastic tool to be able to, to be more aware of who you are, to be able to see yourself from a bird's eye view but also to be able to see other people as they are as well and to really truly connect with the environment around you in terms of the people, but everything really. So that was six months. I did six months of really intense training around meditation and then became decided to become certified to be able to share that with, every, with everybody else because it took me through the one of the most challenging times in my life and I've had a roller coaster of a life Andrew you know we could talk about a whole bunch of roller coasters I've been on in my personal life but that stripping away of my corporate label was one of the hardest I never thought it would be that difficult I thought I wasn't going to be respected I thought I wasn't going to be recognized I thought people would think that I'd given up I thought people would you know think that I didn't understand what success meant so many things went through my mind at that time and, and meditation really rescued me and brought to the surface all of the values and things that I truly cared about and brought to the surface that confidence to be able to show up again as me. Do people have to leave in order to reconnect and be authentic? I don't think they do. This would be another 
thing that I now see now that I've left. <laughs> hmm. Sometimes when I look in, certainly not in my last corporate experience, but prior to that, I've moved organizations quite a lot. And in hindsight, I don't think I needed to. I do believe that if I had done the work that I did now on the evenings and weekends, you know, kind of done some self-inquiry, that I would have had more tools to be able to really include myself in those environments. I certainly believe that in my early career, I was looking externally for recognition, respect, um, inclusion, all of those types of things. I didn't know that's what I was doing, but when I look back now, I'm pretty sure that that's what was happening. So I would move very quickly if I wasn't happy with my manager, if I wasn't happy with how I was being paid, if I wasn't happy with my progression, I would just go, fine, somebody else is headhunting me, off I go, bye. And now I think about it, I think, gosh, I moved quite a few times looking for something, looking for an organization that would respect me or an organization that would reward me or promote me or all these kind of things. But actually, it was really within myself that I needed to look. And you can very successfully stay in an environment as long as it's not damaging you or, or disrespecting you, but you can stay in environments that are tricky, that are difficult, that are maybe a bit challenging if you understand why you feel they're challenging, what your purpose is within that role and in that company. I do believe that, that you can stay, work on yourself, and that very same job and that very same company will become a very different experience. Absolutely. Well, I do hope that perhaps as leaders and as people creating change, we can create more of that space for people to be able to do that work safely, openly in a supportive environment, then we're likely to far increase our ability to retain talent and get the true benefit of them coming to work with their full selves. But that's going to take some courage and some take some time. But I'm sure with the likes of support that people can get from you, Katie, it's going to take a lot less. So thank you so much. Being Human Well is the name of your organization. How do people reach out to you? So I have, a, I have a website called Being Human Well. <laughs> Keep it simple. Um, you can email me at katie at being human well. But I'm super interactive. So if you are on LinkedIn and you just want to DM me and ask me a question or make a comment or um, share an inspiring story with me, then you're welcome to find me as Katie Mantua George on LinkedIn as well. Then Katie, thank you so much for joining us on Beeline. Thank you, Andrew. It's been wonderful being here. <laughs> Don't miss the next episode of Beeline when Andrew talks to leadership coach, trainer, keynote speaker and author Carla Miller. This episode launches a week earlier than planned in order to benefit from the lead up to International Women's Day on the 8th of March. If you're interested to know more or could do with a reminder about today's episode or any of the other episodes in this series of Beeline, I've collated some notes, links and resources for you to explore and download www.consultthehive.com forward slash beeline. The Hive Change Consultancy provides radically effective training, coaching and facilitation that enables a dynamic shift in leaders, sales teams and entire organisational cultures. Get in touch today for an informal chat with one of our team. My name's Gemma Aston and you've been listening to Beeline. Lead the way. Beeline.